this is Kyle. And this is Wags. And this is Shadows of Chi-Town. Alright, welcome to Shadows of Chi-Town episode 5. I'm Wags. I'm Kyle. We're here talking about murders. Murders. Today's not a ghost story episode. Sorry guys. Just true crime today. All day. For the next 45 minutes. <laughs> yeah. 45 minutes a day. All day. We're going to be talking about the lipstick killer and... The Tylenol murders. Yeah. This is Shadows of Chuck Town. This is the coolest intro we've ever done. What are we even talking about? What's... <laughs> okay. What's this podcast? Yeah. We need to... So this is episode five. <laughs> We need to uh, dial it in. We're talking true crime. So I'll start us off here with our first topic, the lipstick killer. Ooh. Um, so. I don't know is, much about this one. Yeah, I'm excited because I do now. Um, <laughs> there were only like two. There, I wasn't able to read these books and I don't know how. Um, informational they really would be there's a book written by a woman who was trying to exonerate the guy who was ultimately convicted and there's one other book but they both seem like they're not like there's not necessarily a definitive book so so there isn't a lot known so anyways we will dive right in so post-world war ii chicago 1946 We've got three murders and a mysterious message scrawled in lipstick that says, For heaven's sakes, catch me before I kill more. I cannot control myself. Ooh. Yeah. That's so, creepy. Yeah, it is. Do you know what they... Did they all say that? No, this is only at one murder. Okay. So, <laughs> we're already starting to poke holes in these, in these cases. Because that's going to be big holes. So... The first murder is Josephine Ross, a 43-year-old woman, and this is June 5th, 1945. She's found at 4108 North Kenmore, which is her apartment building. She's been stabbed repeatedly, and she has a dress wrapped around her head. No valuables are stolen. Her fiancé and then all of her ex-boyfriends have alibis, so they don't know where to go with this. Was that Rogers Park? No, I think that's um, Lakeview. Lakeview? Yeah. Most of them are like Lakeview. Like okay. Kind of where like Nathan used to live. So oh, yeah. There. So yeah. like a little near Ish. us in the old old apartment. Yeah, almost bordering on uh, yeah. uptown. So one witness says they saw a dark-complected man like loitering outside the building or running from the building that night. That's all I've got. Nothing. So this is June. So, murder number two happens December 10th, 1945. So, we've already got, like, quite a large gap. <laughs> Bring more on that later. So, this is, like, six months later. So, Francis Brown at 3941 North Pine Grove, which is the same neighborhood-ish. Yeah. Uh, she's found with a, neck, uh, with a knife sticking out of her neck, bullet wound to the head, multiple stab wounds. She's found by the cleaning lady. Again, no valuables taken. And this is where they find that message written in lipstick across the wall of her apartment. 
And so obviously that is a huge thing for news reporting, especially back then. I mean, it would still be now. Of I course. think I think it would be. Yeah. So that's kind of the beginning of what becomes a media circus, essentially. Because it's pretty lurid detail just in there. It would, so, it would be even worse these days because we have the 24-hour news cycle, which back then they didn't yeah. because they were smart. Yeah, I was going to say, you're totally right. Um, and even this story is obviously not a 24-hour story, but it became one of those stories where it's just like every week they're just going over it, even if there's nothing to... Nothing new. It's like just well, that's, a constant. That's why. That's why we look so stupid in the news cycle. Like people are, and then now it would be like dissecting each part. Be like, okay, lipstick, and then we would go through yeah. the history of lipstick, and then the particular brand of lipstick that the killer used. It'd be like, are you a communist if you use this lipstick? Find out. Find that's, out later. Yeah, that's our problem too, though. Like that was to jump back. I don't, I didn't mention this on the last episode, but I've been reading up about OJ. My my stoking the passion, juice. Yeah, my stoking passion for that case has has uh, simmered. But when I was reading Vincent Bugliosi's book about it, and he's dissecting the defense and the prosecution and the media for not knowing what the fuck they're talking about, uh, he pointed out so much of that because he was talking about how the dream team out of the dream team, only one of them was like really ever a criminal defense lawyer of note. The other, a lot of the other ones had never even tried a murder case and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, see, and then the media says like, these are the best people money can buy. And he's like, actually they're not. <laughs> he's like, actually they're kind of okay lawyers, but also their specialty is this or that or not criminal defense murder trials. <laughs> um, but he, yeah, he got into that a lot, which was interesting because that's pre, you know, that's like the 90s compared to like what it is now. And just how, you know, he was just going on about how there's so many pundits and people that are legal experts on these shows that don't know what the fuck they're talking about. But little do you know how much you're skewing public opinion. And you don't, you know, you don't even yeah. have the facts, let alone the expertise, you know, because you're not inside the case. So you don't know the actual evidence. You know what you heard on TV. Oh, that's exactly like, the point, and it's all for you know they gotta keep keep the viewers going. So then they mm-hmm. like most news stories, and they wouldn't last more than fifteen minutes, you know. And then then you have to milk it and say, oh, everybody's covering this, and then they throw out whatever pretty irresponsibly. Mm-hmm. Like Malaysia, the, the missing flight, that's a really good example of that. And they have these experts come on. Uh, saying, oh, this is what happened. It's a murder-suicide by the pilot. And you're running this guy's name through the mud, and you're not even certain. Yeah, you have no idea. And these experts are looking at pictures, uh, you know, the same pictures the public's looking at. And a lot of them aren't even on site. Yeah, you're drawing a bunch of conclusions. Yeah, and then you have conflicting. <laughs> but bottom line is nobody's completely sure what happened with that. And But you've already through this guy like the pilot through through the mud you know that's gonna happen in this case yeah. to some extent but yeah exactly i mean i don't know it's it's a bit ridiculous and it's <laughs> well it's just you're commenting before you know you're commenting with certainty yeah. on a very small amount of information before you know while something is like an ongoing investigation it's like you can't the thing with the oj case too is like even his son because i know when we were talking about it like i told you that i read like 
Yeah. Like a lot of theories that were put down by like I think the private investigator about his his yeah. son being the killer. You know, like a lot of the stuff that the evidence that deals with the, the son is kind of is really flimsy or just inaccurate. You throw that it's not like it's a big crime you're accusing this guy of, you know? Yeah. And they do it so lightly, I think. And yeah, it's that too. I mean, I think we, I think no one has so few people are in that position of being like wrongly accused or whatever, being thrust into that like spotlight more so now than ever though, with like the way that media works and everything. But I think, you know, obviously for the average person, it's pretty hard to conceive of what that's actually like. So when you accuse someone, you don't really, like, get the ramifications of what that's like for that guy. Yeah, I mean, it's a big deal to accuse anybody of murder. And then maybe you have some evidence that looks kind of good or kind of, you know, circumstantial, whatever. But to do it out in the open like that and point the – because you can't – can't erase that and some i think some part of it's just going to stick with you no matter like in the public eye you know what i mean yeah i don't know there's no there's no change in that once it's thrown out there what we're really trying to say is there's no escape no ask (laughs) jared in some way (laughs) well yeah i mean he probably deserved what came to him oh he 100 percent did but you're always going to associate those two subway sandwiches yeah. And Jared. So I can't eat there anymore. Is that legal? Can we do that? It happened. It happened. Uh, once you're... Well, here's something I was going to tell you in regards to screenwriting, but it implies to any of the stuff you do. Uh, once you're convicted of a crime, yeah, that whole thing is public domain. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's why, like, uh, you know, like, if we wanted to write a case, well, we couldn't do it on OJ, but anybody that's convicted... That's why there's all those movie of the week things and they're not, there's no copyright infringement between people when something happens because now it's public rep- record where like, if we were like, Oh, I want to write a movie about Ted Bundy. We can you're just, do whatever you're, we want. You're, you're describing a lifetime's business plan. <laughs> yeah. Basically. I mean, really. It's, yeah. Okay. We're going to get back now because we've taken a big leap away from where we were. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> so at the Francis Brown murder, they find a, a bloody partial fingerprint, palm print on a door jam, and that's all they've got. And they have a night clerk who works in the lobby of the building, says he saw a nervous man, 35 to 40 years old, 140 pounds-ish, fumble out of the building that night. So that's interesting. So, four days later, the CPD announces that they have reason to believe the killer is a woman. This is just something I need to find more information about because I have no idea why, (laughs) but they say, Oh, now it's a woman. Um, and throughout this case, there's a lot of times where they announce like we found the person and then they let them go like multiple times. So they're obviously under a lot of pressure to figure this shit out. And they're like jumping to conclusions way too early. That's December 10th, January 7th, 1946 is murder number three which I have a lot to say about. This is kind of the big one of the three. So six-year-old Susan Degnan goes missing from her Edgewater apartment. Police find a ladder outside her window and a ransom note. And the ransom note reads, uh, <clears throat> and it's all like spelt poorly and 
even in the grammar of it is different than the lipstick message, I think. But anyways. Was this one done in lipstick? No. no? This is just a handwritten note. Um, and it says, get $20,000 ready and wait for word. Do not notify FBI or police. Bills in fives and tens. Burn this for his safety. Then the Degnan family gets repeated calls for ransom, but the person keeps hanging up before they can actually like discuss it in detail. Then Chicago Mayor Edward Kelly receives a note, and the note reads, This to tell you how sorry I am not to not get old Dignan instead of his girl. Roosevelt and the OPA made their own laws. Why shouldn't I and a lot more? So, of course, I read that, and not being of that era, I was like, what the fuck is the OPA? So the OPA is the Office of Price Administration. So they were in charge of price and rate controls during World War II and rationing and all that kind of stuff. So at the time, there was a meatpacker strike, and the OPA was talking about rationing dairy. And Dignan, this girl's father, was a senior OPA exec. He recently moved to Chicago. And also around this time, there's another OPA executive who had received death threats against his child, his children. And there was some other guy who was involved with the black market part of, like, selling meat who had been decapitated. So, yeah, we're going to come back to that because that casts a lot of doubt in my mind as to the connection of these three murders at all. Because you've got, a, like, a 43-year-old woman. This other woman, I think, is in her 40s. And they've got a 6-year-old girl with a ransom note. I mean, do these have anything to do with each other? I don't think so. So, acting on a tip, the police discover Susan's head in a sewer a block from her home. They find her right leg in a catch basin, her torso in another storm drain, and her left leg in another drain. A month later, they find her arms in another sewer. Blood was found in the drains of laundry tubs in the basement laundry room of a nearby apartment building. Police questioned hundreds of people. They polygraphed somewhere around 170 people. Claimed several times to have captured the killer, though they all ultimately always ended up releasing these people. They did discover that in the basement laundry room of 5901 Winthrop, that was where the, the dismemberment took place, which was a nearby the nearby apartment building. They determined the time of death was sometime between 12.30 to 1 a.m. Uh, obviously, it was a very sharp knife used, and she was expertly dismembered, no hacking. So it was obviously, they determined it had to be like either a surgeon or someone who was probably a butcher or a meat packer. Witnesses, several different witnesses, claimed to have seen either a woman or a man or both together in a car in and around the home. And then also the alley behind this building where the basement laundry is, the night of the abduction slash murder. Again, like adult man and woman. So... Then we have our false suspects along the way here. The first guy they bring in that's like a serious suspect is Hector Vergberg, a Belgian janitor in that building at 5901 Winthrop. So the cops beat the shit out of him and interrogate him, only to find out that he doesn't know English well enough to have written this ransom note. He can't write it well enough. So they let him go. And he sues them for $15,000 and wins. And this is back in the day when, like, that didn't happen. Jeez. (laughs) 
Way to go. Then they find uh, this handkerchief in the Dignan's home with uh, the monogram on it that is S, uh, first initial S, last name Sherman. And they find out that there's this guy in Chicago, ex-Marine, named Sidney Sherman, who lives at, like, uh, YMCA. And then they found out, like, oh, he just moved spur of the moment and quit his job. And then they find him living, I think, in Ohio, and he had eloped with some girl, and he had nothing to do with it. And then they find out, well, it, that was the wrong S. Sherman. This handkerchief belongs to a Seymour Sherman, who lives out of state as well and has no explanation for why his handkerchief would be in Chicago. So they chalk it up to a coincidence, let that go. Then they find out what was going on with the ransom phone calls. So they have this kid, Theodore Campbell, comes in and says he did the phone calls and his buddy, these are neighborhood kids, like 15, 16, and his buddy Vincent Costello claims to have done the murder. Really, they just overheard the cops talking about it and decided to call in and like try to claim the ransom. And that's why they're hanging up because they're fucking kids. And it's like, they don't know what they're doing, you know? So so they think it's them for a minute. And then obviously they interrogate them and find out like, oh, they don't fucking know anything. I wish I could be a fly on that wall for that interrogation. (laughs) That is a great ridiculous twist where it's like, these. so these kids have nothing to do with it. They're just idiots. He was only guilty of having like the most mobster name I've ever heard. Oh, yes. Yeah, for sure. That guy um, <laughs> went on to be yeah, hopefully the godfather of some... There's definitely some mob, mob figure with the exact same name. At least one. So by February 1946, they don't have a killer, and the press is on their ass every time they make a mistake. As they probably should be, but it, it obviously gives them kind of like undue attention. So uh, around this time, they get a letter from the police in Phoenix, Arizona who have a guy named Richard Russell Thomas. He is a nurse. Uh, he's kind of a drifter, and he was in Chicago at the time of these murders and is now living in Phoenix, um, and he's actually awaiting sentences, sentencing for molesting his own daughter. And they've noticed that his handwriting seems similar to, uh, I think, the lipstick. I don't know if, don't know if their handwriting looked similar to the lipstick or the ransom note. No, it is the ransom note. So they notify the Chicago police, who I guess come there to interview him. And he also frequented a car rental agency that was like across the street from where they found those body parts in the sewer, apparently. Uh, So they interview him. He freely admits that he committed the murder, later recants it, but he freely admits it. But then at the same time, Chicago police catch a burglar in the north side part of the city. I've read it was in uh, Rogers Park, though, so that is not really close to where these murders happened if they're in Lakeview. Well, Winthrop is kind of on, because I, I go to Winthrop. Yeah. So that's kind of that's closer, like on the but edge that's of, still... that's like Edgewater, and yeah. then if you go 10 minutes, it's, I don't know how it was in the 40s, though, but... Well, I mean, in the 40s, I guess you got to assume there's less traffic, so you could go further. But yeah. you've also got to assume, unless your burglar has a car, that is far. Yeah, it's near the, the trains, but oh, I, that's true. I, I yeah. don't know how... You could take the L. Yeah. I don't know how long it was, but it, it's literally... And parking's yeah. so bad nowadays, I don't know. I, I kind of... Anytime i got to go to Pine Grove... So I know exactly kind of where Pine Grove yeah. is in Lakeview. Right. In Winthrop. 
Winthrop's close enough that if you were determined, you could probably walk there in maybe an hour from Rogers Park. That's a long way. It's a I long mean, that's way. a long time. Anyways, we'll get into why that's kind of immaterial anyways. But, so they catch this 17-year-old petty thief. He runs into a janitor. So, I should go back and just say this is June 26, 1946. So, this murder case has been hot and unsolved now for like six months. So, they just interviewed Richard Russell Thomas. But also, at the same time, back in Chicago, they catch this kid. is caught in the middle of a burglary. This janitor tries to catch him, uh, steps in his way. The kid has a gun and points it at the janitor. The janitor says, fuck this, lets him go. He, he runs like to another building nearby and then the cops corner him and he points the gun at them and they claim the gun misfired and then there's like a scuffle and eventually they catch him he says he just was a kid and he pointed the gun at them and like they didn't be afraid so he just tried to run or whatever so they catch this kid and his name is william herons h-e-i-r-e-n-s i'm not sure if i'm pronouncing that right Anyway, so he's a 17-year-old kid, petty thief, very intelligent, but does a lot of burglaries. So he's from Lincolnwood. Okay. But I'm just saying, so that's far away. So uh, he's in and out of trouble, little burglar thief kid, gets into trouble a lot. One of the times he's getting out of juvie or whatever kind of jam he's in, goes to high school, does really well does so well and is so smart that he skips the rest of high school and they send him to University of Chicago at age 16. So then he's he's commuting to the University of Chicago. And From ends up, Lincolnwood? Yeah, and Ooh. then that's so far that Ooh. he ends up like in a boarding house on the south side or whatever. Yeah, that, that's a commute. Yeah. So he's a really smart young kid, even though he's into these burglaries. They immediately, even though they have Richard Russell Thomas saying, yeah, I did it. They go, no, okay, we just caught a burglar kid in the neighborhood. This is the kid. This is the guy. Even though every witness has said an adult man and we have a 17-year-old kid. Okay. So they take Aaron's and put the screw to, screws to him for six days, 24 hours a day. Doesn't see his parents. Doesn't see a lawyer. No food. No water. It gets worse. Jeez. Then they let two psychiatrists come in. Without a warrant, without his consent, without his parents' consent, and inject him with sodium pentothal and interrogate oh, him for serum? three hours. Yeah. Uh, we later find out that the prosecutor not only knew about this, he got the psychiatrist to come and paid them a grand to do it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so they interrogate him for three hours. And then they say that he eventually started speaking of an alternate personality named George who committed the murders. And they, at first, think this is a real person and can't find him. And they're like, what's George's last name? And he says, I don't remember what it is, but it sounded like a murmuring name. So they decide that then it's George Merman. Oh, you're kidding me. Yes. No, so they go, okay, oh. now we're looking for George M-U-R-M-A-N, last oh, name. Oh, my gosh. Then the press takes that and says, oh, he said George murder man it's the telephone game yeah and it becomes a telephone game and a big deal uh later in 1952 one of the psychiatrists said that herons never implicated himself in the murders during this uh herons doesn't remember anything because he's all drugged up 
on day five of the six-day interrogation, they give him a spinal tap without an anesthetic. Oh, my In hopes God. that that will do what? I don't know. Then they also decide, okay, now it's time for the polygraph. And they hook him up, and he's in too much pain to do an accurate polygraph. So they let him go to the hospital, and they later take a polygraph that's deemed inconclusive. In between the two polygraphs, he says George might be responsible when he's more coherent. So they take this as some kind of confession. They're looking for this George guy who doesn't exist. Uh, and obviously has all this is happening. Like it's the press is just going nuts with it. So, and then here's the evidence that we get. No handwriting match to the lipstick. No handwriting match to the note. Even though these are reported in the newspaper as has being mat matches and cops do say publicly like there is a match. There's never a match. They say that his left pinky connected to fingerprints on the ransom note by nine points of comparison. The FBI standard is 12 points of comparison. With nine points, that would also include 65% of the population as being a match to this ransom note. We'll get even more into the issues with the ransom note later. Uh, the bloody smudge partial fingerprint at Francis Brown's murder. Captain Emmett Evans says this clears him of the murder. There's, it's not a match, at least the Francis Brown murder. Twelve days later, Chief of Detectives Walter Storm says the bloody smudge conclusively says that Herons is guilty of the murder. Because it is a match. Okay. Uh... <laughs> It's a lifetime movie waiting to happen right Dude, here. Dude, this is an unbelievable case. Lifetime miniseries. Like, I'm going to read more. Okay, so obviously then they search like his family home, wherever he's staying on the south side by the, the school. And they find a ton of stuff he's stolen from burglaries. Which is interesting when you consider what I've said earlier, where we have all these murders, no valuables taken. Yeah. I, I don't know how many people change their MO that much. So, among the things that they find taken, they find a scrapbook that he stole from a war veteran that has these pictures of Nazi officials. But that guy, the war veteran, lived in the same neighborhood as Dignan. And supposedly that burglary happened that night. But I don't know that they can corroborate that in any way. Uh, they also find a copy of this book, Psychopathia Sexualis, which is circumstantial hokum. They find a medical kit that he used to alter stolen war bonds. But as you can imagine, if you're altering like tiny paper, this is not a medical kit that is at all suited to dismember a body, nor did they find any trace of blood, hair, anything. It, it was not involved. They find the gun that, uh, well, they find another gun that he had stolen from this guy, Guy Roderick, a 22 pistol that had been linked to some non-fatal shooting that, they, I don't think they determined whether that happened after or before he stole it or what, but it was there. Uh, so immediately the media portrays him as this weird Jekyll and Hyde character before he's ever even charged with murder. And they're constantly publishing like false facts and stories and confessions, even before he's ever confessed. So then we've got this guy, uh, this witness, George E. Subgrunsky. And I believe he was from the second murder, I think. Or maybe he was from the Dignan case. But So his initial statement is, eyewitness, like I see someone leaving the building. Uh, it's dark, I couldn't see his face, but he's a 35 to 40 year old man, about 170 pounds. Couldn't see his face. 
then when he comes to court, it's William Herons, and he saw his face because he walked in through the headlights of a car. Oh. And he somehow just <laughs> de-aged uh, 20 years. I got you. Now... Well, yeah, exactly. So it's bullshit, but it's in front of the jury. And I feel like somebody went back to him at his house and did the AC Slater where they take the chair and then spin it backwards. And like, hey, let me tell you how it went. (laughs) Okay? Yeah, you're going to be so excited. (laughs) So now, Herons has got a defense that he's paying for. It's not a public defender, but they think he's guilty. So the prosecutor on the other hand, is not confident they're going to get a conviction. And the prosecutors have a meeting with the defense and say, look, you know, knowing that the defense thinks he's guilty, so the defense is kind of like, yeah, we'll work with you. Try to get, like, him to just confess and do a plea deal because that's the best-case scenario. And now this is at a time when the electric chair was what was going to happen. That was the deal was, like, we'll take death penalty off the table. Maybe you can talk him into doing a confession. So the defense ropes him into this plea bargain for like a life sentence. If he does a confession, he they help him draft a confession from newspaper reports because he doesn't know what the fuck happened. Because what didn't kind fucking of do what it. kind of terrible cycle is that to to be doing the confession from news reports printing false <laughs> yeah, story exactly. yeah that came God that's that's unbelievable yeah so. So he's all set up for this life sentence. They have like a press conference. And according to Herrings, and this makes sense when you think about a 17-year-old. A lot of these things make a lot of sense when you think about a 17-year-old kid. They do all this stuff. They have this press conference. And he says, so the prosecutor kept saying, talking about how the truth is going to come out, blah, 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 blah. And I said, like, do you really want the truth? And he says, yes. So, of course, at the press conference, then Herrings says, well, the truth is, like, I didn't do it. And everyone's pissed. And they flip the fuck out. Then the prosecutor threatens to tag on another murder that happened in Indiana that he has an alibi for. Just because he's pissed. Just just trading murders like they're, they're Pokemon cards. Yeah, because huh? they don't know what the fuck to do with any of these murders. Obviously, Herring's defense team says, what the fuck, you know, you gotta... So he confesses again. Because he, you know... He doesn't realize what's happening here. So he confesses again, and this time now the, the, the deal is up to three life sentences, one for each murder. And they have him, like, reenacting reenacting events of the murder in front of press and shit. The only thing that actually tracks as far as, as, far as any of the things Herring says is... So he says at some point in here that he did the, dismem- did the dismemberment with a hunting knife... And then he threw that hunting knife on the L tracks and they actually find a hunting knife at that point of the L tracks that the like uh, the rail gang people had. However, there is never anything drawn conclusively whether that was the actual knife that did the dismemberment. But the guy that I spoke about earlier, Guy Roderick, where he stole that twenty two pistol from, that's where the hunting knife was stolen from. So to me, I don't know. In my head, I think, okay, you stole that knife and you threw that knife. That knife had nothing to do with this, but that just happened to be a real thing. But that's really, out of all this stuff, the only thing that you're like, okay, that actually is a true thing. So after he admits guilt, he tries to hang himself in his cell uh, unsuccessfully. I guess the guards were there or something. He ends up getting these three life terms. 
This is a note to myself, as we pointed out. But this kid's MO is burglary and nothing is ever stolen from any of the victims, which just seems like strange, especially considering what we know just as true crime enthusiasts about real serial killers who themselves generally keep or steal some bit of either an item from their victim or a piece of their body just as a trophy, just as a totem. Yeah. So it seems weird that you're already a thief and yet you're not going to take anything from any of these people that you're murdering, right? Yeah. You know, if anything, it would be he started out with with robbing and breaking in, and then... Someone's there. Gradually right? Yeah, well... Way. And I, I mean, if you want to give him the benefit of the doubt, you could say, he's just stealing stuff, and someone's there one time, and what do you do? You but also, don't want to get caught. Also, it, it does... It's kind of different, because... The two, the two, you know, forty plus victims yeah. is way different from a six year old girl with a ransom with note a ransom note who's dismembered and all this stuff. Yeah, it's very different. You don't see that often at all, and it's possible, but it, yeah, it would probably would be if it was someone. You would just think it's got to be an older person who who maybe if he is a serial killer is someone who's been doing this a lot and enough to, that he's going to now be doing things that are different, you know? It doesn't seem like the, the ransom Has in the murder is, is connected at all. Like No. In... I don't think they are. And I, and I think, I think that's a huge, like, I think the, the, the kid, the little kid is the big thing. Like the lipstick thing is a big thing. And then all of a sudden a kid getting dismembered is huge thing yeah and they don't know what to do so they just wrap it all together but it's like you have a ransom note that actually tracks with who her father is and what's going on with uh and somebody confessed yeah you have someone confessing and it's like and you just ignore that so they didn't did they not investigate that guy really they dropped him immediately after this kid yeah they catch this kid and go up this is the kid and no matter what roadblocks they hit they just this is the kid i gotta look into how you got around back in the forties from well, there's definitely the train was there, so yeah, so that may, that would be a lot faster. You but could even hop on the train, even from Lincolnwood, could be a pain, man, to get to. Yeah, but at that time he was unless he had a car. No, but yeah, but at that time he was he was staying near University of Chicago. Oh, at that time, yeah, yeah. that's a long trek. It is, but you could take the train yeah. up north. Anyway, so there's some more. I told you about the prosecutor paying for the sodium pentothal. Other experts did later look at the polygraphs and say, no, these polygraphs say conclusively that he's innocent. Can I can I also say that I put no stock in polygraphs whatsoever? I don't either. I think... They're a judgment of whether you're yeah. nervous or not, really. I mean, they're they're judging your central nervous system, which... I mean, the creator of the polygraphs is like, ah, oh, this is kind of... Yeah. It's kind of bad. Well, there's a reason they're not admissible. Yeah, we should so. stop doing this. It's nonsense. However... There is never a handwriting match, and most handwriting experts furthermore say that not only that, but not only does William Herring's handwriting not match the lipstick or the note, the lipstick and the note are not the same person. They don't match. Like, no shit, because these cases are not connected. Here we can go to a very fun part of all we were talking about with the media and stuff. When they find the ransom note, the Chicago Crime Lab couldn't find anything with this originally. Now, a reporter looked at the photograph of the note and said that he could see 
like indentation in the paper, like, you know, like if I wrote a note and took it off and it indented to the next page and then you wrote the ransom note, he says he saw that. CPD, in their great wisdom, said, really? Here's the original. Look at it. Break chain of evidence. And, you know, contaminate this note forever. And he did. <laughs> and that led to fucking nothing. So then they take the note and they send it to the FBI. The FBI finds two latent prints on the front. And so they give it back to Chicago. And the Chicago uh, fingerprint expert says, yeah, these fingerprints are impossible to match to anything. They're junk. And then he tries to match them anyways. And at this time, Herring's prints are on file for another burglary. And guess what? No match. Then they catch Herring. Guess what? We've got a match. <laughs> Big oh, fucking gosh. surprise. Then they find that not only do his fingerprints match the two fingerprints on the front of the note, then after everyone looking at this note, we discovered that his fingerprints match prints on the back of the note. That no one ever saw any prints on the back of the note. And none of this is ever brought up during trial ever again. Because there's no conclusions that are accurate. Yeah, I, uh, I can't imagine that they, they would bring up anything. Yeah, it's all just basically forgotten. Uh, on top of that, the guys at the Chicago Crime Lab also say, oh, by the way, on top of all this contamination and shit, the note was handled heavily, you know, when it was photographed at the scene of the crime before it was ever sent to the crime lab. It was going through many hands, and the FBI even made note of it when it had come to them, like, note has been heavily handled. So it was kind of junk to begin with. Experts later also found uh, 29 factual inconsistencies in his confession that contradict what actually happened. Big surprise. So anyways, he goes to jail for life. Uh, his parents change their last name. They end up getting divorced. He ends up becoming the first prisoner in Illinois history to get a college degree via correspondence courses before they ever offered education in prisons. And he helps to develop like the educational system in the prison. And he helps other prisoners get their GED and helps them with legal advice. He gets diabetes. He's trying to seek clemency unsuccessfully because of just this case, obviously. Yeah. So he dies in prison in 2012 of diabetes, never gets out. Obviously, this is way before the time that we acknowledge anything about false confessions and the horror. You know, Especially the, in Chicago. Yeah. Like, with the, the yeah. history of the city and false confessions. and Well, and, and, and the... And that, death row inmates that get exonerated. Yeah, well, that plus the, the fact that it's a child that's dismembered and such a horrific crime. And once you associate it with that person, it's like they're never going to let it go. No, that's and that's what we're talking about. Once you accuse somebody that publicly and the media yeah. goes awry, it doesn't matter how much damage control you do, how much you try to clear your it's no one doing it. Yeah, it's it's done. Like no yeah. matter he could have gotten, you know, proven innocent and I think people would have still given him a hard time for Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Because they probably would never found who did it. Yeah. Especially considering it's definitely at least two different people. Maybe more. You don't even know for sure that the Francis Brown and Josephine Ross are connected. There definitely is a lot more possibility that they're connected, sure, but you don't know that for sure. Yeah, I mean, it well, is... they don't know because they stopped investigating. Yeah, and they wasted a lot of manpower and they and fucked time, up left and right. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a huge case of like, oh, wow, this is just a court of public opinion gone crazy. Well, good for that guy, though, for at least trying to make a positive difference in his bad circumstance. Yeah, by all accounts, he was like a model prisoner. And I can't believe that one wasn't one that got brought back up uh, at a later date. Like, a, you know, and... It did, because part of the thing, there was a legal thing where you could only serve X amount of time for certain crimes it, had you been convicted before, like, 1973. Obviously, it was 1946. So, but what happened is first they said, "Okay, that's fine for the first life sentence. You still got two life sentences." And then I think eventually they kind of like capped off the second life sentence. But the thing with the little girl, nobody was ever letting it go. And I think part of the problem with that is goes to the the media perception and also the fact that okay, now you're facing you're having these legal hearings in the 80s with kids who were a kid then or not even born then. So, and you know what I mean? A lot of people probably They're, passed away. And yeah, people passed away. But you've got a lot of people that inherited, this guy did this. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, they weren't around at the time, so they're just taking that as fact. Well, that's the bad thing about history is that it can be it can be smudged by, like, if you if you go back and look at the, the newspaper reports back then, you get all kinds of misinformation. What yeah. are you going to do? You know, It's all just skewed to hell. Until Lifetime makes that movie. Yeah. Did this. I can write it. Yeah. Um, footnote before we close this one out. So back to Richard Russell Thomas, just to uh, put the cherry on top. So he, like I said, was a drifter. He had previously been convicted of an attempted extortion, which included a ransom note and a little girl. Interesting. Like we said, there's similarities in the handwriting, at least superficially. I don't know if anyone really, you know, really looked at it. He was in Chicago at the time. He did confess to the police while awaiting sentencing for molesting his daughter. Uh, he also had a history of violence and spousal abuse. Now, he also worked as a nurse and liked to masquerade as a surgeon. Interesting. See dismemberment. Uh, he was also a burglar. He also frequented the car agency across the street from the sewer where the body parts were found. He ends up dying in an Arizona prison in 1974. No big loss. But it seemed pretty likely that he killed that little girl and whoever killed these other women, who the fuck knows. Well, hopefully Father Time took care of that guy because he probably lived a pretty free life from the sounds of it. He was clearly a big-time piece of shit. Yeah, shit, man. So, that's a lot to unpack. Right? That's what I'm saying. Like, that's just my kind of cursory research. Not looking at the books and kind of having the feeling that there's probably even... If one were to sit down and try and make a definitive book and look at everything, I'm sure you would see even more, you know? Yeah, look up the addresses and see how far... Yeah, I... I looked it up before, uh, but I would have to refresh my memory. But from my what I recall, I think they were all like pretty close. I'll tell you this much: if this was modern day, you're not you're not parking at that murder place, not legally. <laughs> no, you're definitely not. After seven seven p.m., no way, no way. I, Pine Grove, no way. I'm gonna contradict Winter, myself when no I way. say I don't know how the cops did this, but I do because it happens all the time. But I don't know how the cops have 
witnesses from every single one of these three different cases, but who all, every witness says like a 35 to 40 year old man. And then with the girl, it's a 35 to 40 year old man and a grown woman. But I don't know how you have, that's all you have to go on. And then you're like, oh, 17 year old kid. That's the one. You know, I'm like, I don't know how the the, sub, the suspect description clearly is not this. The only thing I would say... Well, and, well, yeah, caveat is, like, all right, eyewitnesses yeah. are not reliable. Well, that and, like, I know that the police often hold on to a lot of information that they don't make public. Right. So that's the only thing I could think of is that they had some kind of information that they were holding on to. It doesn't look like it here because it probably would have came out yeah, at this time. And, and then intervening yeah. almost now, almost 80 years. Yeah, haven't heard anything. But that's the only thing I can think of is that they, they had some kind of information that they were holding on to as proof. That, you know, and I, I don't know. This one's tough. But yeah, that poor, that poor kid, man. Yeah. Thanks for listening. And please remember to like, share, follow, uh, you know, tweet, Twitter, Instagram. Tell your friends. Tell your mom. Call your mom. Just tell your dad. See what your uncle's up to. And we'll be back next week. Thanks. Shadows of Chai Town is produced by Kyle Hintz and Wags. Music by Nathan Allen M3 Bookalicky Nichols. Editing by Kyle Hintz. 